The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Genesis chapter 9. Let me add my good morning to all of you. Good to see you here with us today. It's kind of a weird day for Jamie and I. We're actually getting ready to leave for vacation immediately after the service. So this is it. Goodbye. I was telling someone I was going to pray, and as I was praying, I was actually going to be physically walking out, but that's not true. I will stick around for a little bit longer than that, but uh, we're heading the road for Chicago. We'll be gone for a week. West Cove will be preaching next week, so thank him in advance for doing that, and ask you to be here for him next week, support him, and learn from the Word, uh, just like you do every Sunday. Here in Genesis 9 this week, we're going to read verses 1 to 17, if you will, look at verse 1 together. Moses writes, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we want to remember this morning who we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no life in us whatsoever. We were totally incapable of seeing who we were, of changing ourselves, of fixing anything, much less of ever being made right with you. And yet... Death is not a natural thing, no matter what we say about it. It's very much unnatural. You made this world to experience abundant life. Death was a consequence of sin. 
it is not in your original plan for who we were supposed to be. And yet each of us is born into this world dead. Dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. And so to rectify that, you sent your son to die for us so that we could have life. You had him die in our place so that you could fix what was wrong in us. So that you could make us know life once again in the inner self. And and for all eternity, you have given us life. You are a God of life. You are the one and true living God. And so this morning, Father, we have gathered together as a group of people, many of whom were dead in their trespasses and sins, but today stand here alive. Not, Not because of us, not because of anything we've done, but because of your grace. We are saved by you. You are our hope. You are our joy, our sanctification. You're our righteousness, and you are our life. So this morning, Lord, we want to rejoice in that life. We want to remember it, worship you for it, and understand that this is the kind of God that you are, one that celebrates the life that you give to your creatures, one who loves to see your people live to worship and serve you. So this morning as we go through the text, will you make that clear to us? Will you help us to see the way you look at this world, even here in these verses we're looking at this morning, these first 17 verses of chapter 9? Will will your spirit be active today to empower me to accurately present your word and then to take your word and use it to change us to be more like Christ? It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about you, your spirit, your word. Help us to remember that. And so we ask you to meet with us today, Father. Meet with us through your word. Help us to see it and understand it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've uh, said to you before, I think on more than one occasion, that my favorite time of year by far is the fall. I love autumn. I love everything about it. I love cold weather. First and foremost, as far as I'm concerned, it can't get cold fast enough around here. I keep looking at the 10-day forecast, looking for the low temperatures, seeing what's coming ahead, and it's finally, finally a few nights in the 60s in the 10-day forecast, in case you hadn't looked at it. I'm pretty excited about it. I love all the stuff that happens this time of year, everything from uh, watching the season change and all the leaves fall. I love Thanksgiving and Christmas. There's just a lot of fun things, I think, that happen in the fall that, to me, are way more fun than anything that goes on in the summer. I love football. To be more specific, I love fantasy football. I love... uh, trying to live vicariously through the accomplishments of others and then using their accomplishments to gloat over the people who I happen to beat in my league occasionally. Uh, It's very much fun, particularly when that person happens to be Frank Skirty, who, by the way, I have beat more times than anyone else, just to keep that out there publicly. Plus, ask him how many championships he's won. Uh, Finally, though, finally, this one only comes around once every four years, I love politics. And I love the whole presidential election cycle and all the stuff that goes with it. And don't get me wrong, I get frustrated by a lot of the silly things that are connected to that, just like everyone else does. However, I've always been intrigued by politics. I've always been intrigued by the political process. And so for me, it's, it's still a lot of fun. Um, in fact, for those of you who don't know this, who are newer, because I haven't talked about this, I think, in a long time now, but politics was my first love. You can laugh, okay? It's a true statement, but you can still laugh at me. Politics was my first love. I had every intention of going into a, or pursuing a political career once I graduated from college. 
That is, until uh, I was encountered with the gospel and the Lord changed me through it. At the time, as a very young child, it feels like now 18, 19 years old, I really genuinely believed with all my heart that I could change the world or at least change America through politics, that if somehow we could just get enough of the right people in who would vote for the right policies and the right laws, that somehow we'd be able to fix all the problems we have in this country and make everything better. Um, I was too naive, to say the least, to understand that even if we could vote in all the right people who would vote for all the right laws and the right policies, that that would never actually fix anything. And that would never happen in the first place anyway. The problem with, with politics is that too often, and this is going to sound a little strange at first perhaps, too often we try to focus on people's positions. We want to see where they stand on this issue or that issue. We want to know how they'll vote supposedly on this issue or that issue because it seems that what people say they vote on is never what they actually vote on. I'm a little disenchanted and cynical if you can't tell. Um, even when they say these things and we focus on them, we forget that ultimately what's really, really critical in politics is not the policies that a, a particular candidate says they, they hold to. It's really their character in the end. But the problem with that is that in the current system of politics that we have, it's nearly impossible to see a candidate's true character behind all of the rhetoric and spin and everything else that's put out in front. You see a caricature of a person. You see what people want you to see, and so you never really are able to get down to the heart of what's this person really like? Who are they? What's their character? What are their real plans? Can you even tell based on what you're seeing? This is the problem. Well, this has not been the problem here in Genesis. From, from the very, very beginning of our study here, particularly the study of this flood story, I told you that the story that we're in right now is not ultimately about Noah, nor is it ultimately about the flood, but ultimately, who is this story about? God. It's about God. It's about his character and his plan. And throughout this first scene of Genesis that we've been looking at, the one that starts in chapter 6, verse 9, and goes all the way through chapter 8, verse 22, throughout this whole first scene, the character of God has been on full display. We've seen his holiness. We've seen his provision. We've seen his power. We've seen his faithfulness. All aspects of who he is, of who he really is, unlike the politicians who never seem to let us see their real self. We have seen God's real self, his character on full display in these verses. But today, we're going to start turning our focus now away from his character to the other half of what I said this is about, and that's his plan. We want to understand what is God's plan here in the story, and how is it being laid out for us, this is the turning point we're at today. You remember that last week I told you we were at a turning point as well? Chapter 8, verse 1, where we started last time, is a turning point in a few senses. It's, it's the focus of that whole first scene where it says that the Lord remembered Noah and the animals, everyone on the ark. It's the focus of that first scene, and it serves as a turning point in the flood itself. Everything before that point is ramping up. The flood is building. All this terrible, these terrible things are happening. As soon as the Lord remembers Noah, everything begins resolving itself. So it's a turning point in that sense, but it's also a turning point between two themes, two of the four themes that we've been looking at, and those were the themes of chaos and recreation. Well, today we're at a new turning point. In chapter 9, verse 1, we are 
transitioning from scene one to scene two. And in case you weren't here with us last time, I'll just show you the, the three scenes of this story here behind me. As you can see, scene two goes from chapter nine, verse one to chapter nine, verse 17. So clearly, as we come into chapter nine, we're transitioning from one scene to the next, but we're also transitioning themes as well. Again, here are the four themes that we looked at last time. Chaos, recreation, blessing, failure. As you try to reach above and look across the horizon of this story, you see these four themes developing. And so from chapter 6, verse 9, through chapter 7, verse 24, you have the, the theme of chaos as God is bringing a flood against the earth. In chapter 8, what we looked at last time, a passage that just blows my mind still thinking about all that, the, that Moses has done in laying out who God is in chapter 8. You see recreation as he goes through in order, recreating the world in the same pattern that he did back in chapter 1. Today we get to see the theme of blessing here in verses 1 to 17, and then it's going to, of course, end in failure in the second half of the chapter. So beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, both the scene and the theme theme are progressing to the next stage of the story. And here in this new stage of the story now, we're really going to be focused on God's plan more than anything else. And what I want to show you today is that more than anything else, that even after the flood, even after man's sin, his failure, all the things that we have read about up to this point, God's plan is still to bless the world with life. And if you don't understand why that's significant, then you just simply need to think back to creation. After God had brought the world out of chaos, had created the world through those seven days, what does he do with this world that he's made? He blesses it with life. He wants it to experience abundant life, and so he fills it with life. He tells them to multiply, fill the earth. He wants them to enjoy the blessings of, of creation before him. He wants them to know what life is all about. But as I said in my prayer, what had happened? After sin, death enters the world. And so mankind now is not experiencing the same kind of life that he was originally intended to experience. Does that mean that all is lost? Is God done with us? He's killed most of the people on the earth. He's only left eight alive. What is his plan now? Is life even still in his plan? Well, yes it is. That's what the theme of blessing is bringing us to, that here, coming out of this chaos, as God has recreated life, he now blesses us, blesses the world with life once again. He wants us to experience life in the fullest sense possible. And so what I want to do this morning is show you five ways in which God blesses the world with life here in verses 1 to 17. Let me give them to you one at a time here. First, he blesses the world through the propagation of life. Through the propagation of life. If you look at verse 1, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This is a verbatim repetition of what he said to Adam and Eve back in chapter 1, verse 28. Exactly the same thing. And the meaning of this is, is simple and clear. Go have babies. Lots of babies. I want you to be like a little cornerstone right there in the ark. Okay? When it comes to this command, 
We are doing great. Good job, everybody, all right? We are, we are multiplying, filling the earth. Uh, he wants them to reproduce here in great numbers. If you look down at verse 7, you see that this is so important to him, he repeats it again. And remember that repetition is one of the, the tools that Moses uses to emphasize things that are important. You see it said again, you be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. It even says multiply twice there. And the pronoun you here is plural, so he's saying you all. And I don't think he's just talking to the humans. I think he's talking to everyone on the ark. All the creatures that are coming off the ark. Go! Fill the world with life again. Fill every nook and cranny with life. Have lots and lots of kids. He wants the, the earth to be teeming with life once more. And so while life may not be as abundantly experienced or enjoyed as it was going to be before the fall, his desire is clearly... His desire for life, I should say, is clearly not changed. He wants the world to experience life, and so he blesses the world with the propagation of life. Second, he blesses the world through the sustenance of life. In verse 2, God says this. He says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants... I give you everything. Now, there seems to be a couple of things worth noting here, at least to me. First, there seems to be a change in the relationship between man and animals being discussed here in these few verses. If you think back to creation, what had Adam been told to do in relation to the animals? He had been told to, to have dominion over them. And the word dominion there means to rule. Rule the animal, rule the, the fish of the sea, rule the birds of the air, rule, rule all the creatures of the ground, have dominion over all these creatures, rule them. Well, I don't know about you, but every time I read that verse, there's a part of me that, that looks at that command and understands what the word dominion there means and goes, how could that have ever happened? I mean, I can't even get my domesticated dog who's lived with me for three years now to obey my rule. How am I supposed to obey or make uh, the fish of the sea do my bidding? How am I supposed to, to speak to the birds of the air and have them obey my voice? It, it doesn't even seem possible. But, but then I come here and I see that something seems to be changing in the relationship between men and animals. And now there's going to be this fear or dread of man upon all these animals. And the reason for that fear is given in the very next statement. It has to do with the second change you see. And, that, and that's that God now gives man permission to eat animals. And notice that it's not just some animals that he gives him permission to eat. It's every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, now I'm giving you anything. Anything and everything. You want a sirloin? Go have a sirloin. You want pork chops? Go have a pork chop. You want locust legs? Help yourself. You want eagle drumsticks? If you can catch them, there you go. They're for you. He, he gives them everything now that they can eat for food. Everything's fair game on their menu. And while Moses doesn't give us the reason for these changes, I would simply point out to you that Moses is following the exact same pattern that he did back in Genesis chapter 1. There, after commanding Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth, he told them to have dominion over the animals, and he told them of his provision for food for them. You can have all the, the, the fruit, fruit from the trees of the garden, all the fruit-bearing plants are yours. Here, it's a similar pattern, it's just a little bit different. Multiply, fill the earth. Animals are now going to be afraid of you. Then he tells them of this provision for them here in this new world after the flood. Despite the little difference, the, the general pattern is the same, is that God has made provision for them to sustain their lives. He's not leaving the sustenance of life to chance. He's making provision for it in his plan. Third, 
He blesses the world through the respect of life. Through the respect of life. Because you may be tempted at this point to think that, hey, this sounds great. God loves life. He's providing for He's you know, telling us to propagate it. He's sustaining it. Everything sounds good. Unless you're an animal. <laughs> then it doesn't sound so hot anymore for you at this point. However, I'd point out two details that indicate otherwise to me. First, I'd point out the fear issue we just looked at. I mean, if man has dominion over the animals, he has absolute rule over them, then my guess is that uh, there wouldn't be very many animals left on the earth very long. Hunters would go out into the, the woods and be like, hey, Bambi, come here. <laughs> Gone. You'd walk up to the seashore with a basket and say, hey, fish, in the, in the basket, and they all just obey because that's what they're intended to do. Well, if that was ever the case, and I'm being facetious, I don't know that that's what it would have been, but if that was ever the case, it's not the case now. Now the animals are somewhat protected by this fear as they try to, to, to get away from man as they dread him now. But there's a second way in which you see the respect of life highlighted, and that's with this weird requirement in verse 4 that they should not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In other words, you can eat the animals, Noah, but don't eat their blood. This is off-limits. And it's going to stay off limits actually throughout the rest of the scriptures. You can't do this. Apparently, the blood has to be poured out or disposed of in some way. It, it can't be consumed. And most commentators agree that the reason why he's telling them to do this is as a sign of respect for the life they're giving. It's, it's a way of respecting life in general, even as we kill to sustain life. You respect it in this manner, so it's a very visible, practical way of showing the value of all life, even the life of an animal whom God has said is okay to eat. Life has value to God, and so he expects them to respect that life. Fourth, he blesses the world through the protection of life. If you think the blood of an animal has value to God, well then how much you think the blood of a man is worth? Here in, in verse 5, he answers that question. He says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now there's a lot to look at in this section. I would give you five points if you've never really thought through what these verses are talking about. Here's five things just to think about. I'm not going to put them on the screen. I'm just going to say them to you because they're fairly simple. First, notice that the killing of an animal demanded no reckoning, but the killing of a, of a human does. In other words, when he says to them, look, you can now eat anything. There's no punishment for that. He tells them to respect life. You can't eat its lifeblood. You can't eat that source of its life. You have to pour that out. No punishment, though. Here, though, if you take the life of another man, there will be a reckoning. God is treating them differently. He's drawing a distinction between the two. Why? We'll look at that in a moment. For now, just notice the distinction. Second, notice that the reckoning can apply to humans or animals. In other words, it doesn't matter who kills a man whether he's gored by a bull or mauled by a dog or shot by his neighbor, anyone or anything that takes the life of another human is guilty and deserves this reckoning. Third, notice what the reckoning is. What is it? It's death. This is the reckoning. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. So that makes this capital punishment that he's referring to here. The killing of a man for murder. And if this seems weird to you, that God would say this to Noah as soon as he gets off the ark, you know, Noah's like, hey, dry ground, we're happy. Yay, praise the Lord. Don't kill humans. If you do, you're going to die. Whoa, okay. 
That seems weird to you that God would say this right off the bat. You simply need to think back to what the world was like before the flood. Back in Genesis 6, what did Moses say over and over again that the world was filled with? It was violence. And I said to you that I don't think we can imagine what the world before the flood was like. I have no clue what it was like, but between what he says in chapter 6 and the fact that this is one of the first things that's said when they get off the ark, I'm thinking it was really bad. This is one of the first things he says to, to Noah because he is concerned that life be protected, that whatever was going on before the flood does not continue now. If you kill someone, you're going to die. God institutes a plan of retribution and justice for anyone who would pursue that form of violence in the future. Fourth, notice that this punishment is to be carried out by other men. In other words, couldn't God have said, look, from this point on, if anyone sheds the blood of a man, I'm zapping him from heaven. Zap, 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 zap. Could he have done that? Yeah. But he chooses not to. He chooses to entrust the responsibility and authority of this act to other men. It's not simply a right of these men to kill the killer. It's an obligation of these men to kill the killer because God hates violence. He hates murder. So when people do this, they're actually acting in God's place. And finally, and most important of all, notice the reason why God takes this all so seriously. It's the last few words there. It's because man is made how? In the image of God. Man is an image bearer of God. He is God's representative on this earth. And so to attack man is to, in effect, attack God. He takes it that seriously. If you attack man, you are attacking someone who is made in the image of God. If you kill him, murder him. It is a direct attack against me. And so he sets up a system here to execute justice upon the killer. And all of this, then, you see that God is concerned with the protection of life. It is valuable to him, and he wants Noah and the rest of his, his people, all that will come from him, to understand how valuable it is. And then fifth and finally, he blesses the world through the preservation of life. And this is where we get to the covenant section that takes up the majority of the, of the text today. And that's in verses 8 to 17. God makes a covenant with Noah and with the rest of the remnant. He says, starting in verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it's for every beast of the earth. This covenant that he's about to make, it's not just for Noah. It's for everything. All life. It's for the ants. It's for the dogs. It's for the, the kangaroos. It's for Noah. It's for all life on earth. And also, before we go on, would you like to define a covenant for me? I gave you a two-word definition. I'll say it. You try to fill in the blank. A covenant is a... Very good. A relational contract. I'm always nervous when I do that. and like, please get the answer right. A relational contract. It's a set of promises based on relationship. And here, the covenant is based on God's relationship with his creation. All right? So what's, what exactly is the covenant? Well, here it is, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
Now, we saw this mentioned very, very briefly last week. In chapter 8, verse 20, Moses wrote, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time harvest, cold heat, summer, winter, day, night, none of that's going to cease. He just didn't explain how. Here, God is now expanding on those promises by clarifying for us exactly what it is he's going to do, or perhaps what he's not going to do ever again. To put it in a little bit different light, what he's basically promising is that he will never again return the world to its original state. He's not going back there again. He went back there once in judgment. He's never going back there again. This is the covenant. This is the promise. And now, now we're going to see something that will be the general pattern for all covenants from this point forward. God is going to make a sign a visible sign to remind everyone of the covenant. It acts as as a marker so that everyone who sees the sign will know that this covenant has been made by God. He writes, verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. You remember that word last week? I'll remember. I'll act on my promises. I'll never do anything contrary to that. I'll see it. I'll remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. He sets his bow in the clouds as a a visible marker of this everlasting covenant that he makes with all living things on earth. It serves as a reminder to both him and us that this flood will never come again. And since, as we saw last time, God is always faithful to three things. He's always faithful to himself, to his people, and to his promises Since he's faithful in those three ways, we know for a fact that he will do what he says. And so here you go. Here they are. The five ways in which God blesses the world with life again here after the flood, after recreating the flood. He still wants the world to experience this kind of life. And so he blesses it by propagating it, sustaining it, respecting it, protecting it, preserving it. His plan for life has not changed at all. Now, what do we do with all that? Because it's great to think about this in terms of of Noah and and what that meant for him and all those people coming off the ark, particularly after what they had just been through. But how do we take God's plan to sustain life and to value life and make it real and, and biblically accurate for us? Well, I give you two things that we can do with this. First, and I think most obviously, if life is this valuable to God, if life as a concept, as a, as a state, is this central to his plan, then you and I should value life just as much. And, and there's all kinds of ways that we could apply this. I'll apply it in two that I think are the most, again, obvious for us. One, it's passages like this that should ultimately inform our understanding of what abortion is. 
And I know that may seem like a strange application to make at this point, but as I'm reading about how much God values life here, I can't get my mind away from it. Abortion isn't simply wrong because it's the murder of an unborn child. See, we we see that and we get outraged by it, and I understand why we get outraged by it, and we're right to be outraged by it, but ultimately, that's not the main problem with abortion. Ultimately, abortion is wrong because it violates the very character and plan of God himself. That's ultimately why it's wrong. Because it goes against everything about who he is and what he values in this world. It's a, it's a direct affront to him. He wants us to multiply, not subtract. He, he wants us to fill the earth, not vacuum out wombs. This is not what he's made us for on this earth. And so while abortion may be wrong and evil on many levels, at its very core, it's an act of rebellion against who God is, against his character and his plan. I think it should also excuse me, inform our understanding of capital punishment. And I say that, you know, by and large, Christians, at least the ones I've been around in life, are generally pro capital punishment. And they see this as a big political issue, and, and we want to get political because we all like politics, right, one side or the other. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. Take it out of the realm of public policy. Think about it from a theological perspective for a moment. Think about it based on what we see here. Here we see that capital punishment is ultimately not about the murderer. It's ultimately about who God is. It's a theological thing, again, because God values life, and he specifically values those people whom he has made in his image. And to take the life of a human is a serious offense in God's eyes. And so he treats it very seriously here as well. We are so prone to think about these issues merely on the practical level. And what I'm saying to you this morning is, try to, to, to pull yourself above that and look at these things now from a theological perspective, from a vertical perspective, as God himself sees them. This is his plan. He values life. It's been his plan since the very beginning we should value it as much as well. Second, I would apply it this way. If life is this valuable to God, if it's this central to his plan, then don't you think that, you know, just maybe, perhaps, he values life enough that even in the midst of all the amazing things he's doing here in the story, he's still working out a larger plan to give us life in ways far more abundantly than this story will ever communicate. You know, you think about what happens here. God is going to bring judgment, but he wants to spare Noah and his his family in grace, and so he tells them to build an ark, and he brings them through a flood. He spares their lives, right? And we're all amazed by this, and rightly so, Noah doesn't deserve it. But what happens in verse 29? Noah dies. You see, the flood hasn't gotten rid of the curse of death. Even though Noah is spared at the moment, he's not spared forever. Death still comes. The flood hasn't fixed that problem. You think about the violence and and the wickedness that's going on before the flood. God brings the flood as a judgment upon all that. And what happens after the flood? Well, just look around the world today. There's still violence and wickedness abounding everywhere. The waters of the flood didn't fix 
any of that, ultimately. And so, if God really values life, He wants to respect life and protect life and preserve it in all these ways, if He values it this much, don't you think that even here in chapter 9, God must be working toward a plan that will conquer death and sin once and for all? Well, I do. That's why one day in the future, God is going to send His own Son, right? Who will die on the cross so that he could conquer sin and death forevermore. Because in this story that we've read, humanity as a whole has borne the brunt of sin. Each man is paying for his own sin as he drowns in the flood. And yet, in the future, God is going to send his son so that one man can bear the brunt of all sin. So that one man can pay the penalty, not for his sins, but for the sins of everybody else. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, what does the New Testament tell us? It tells us that he conquers sin, death, and hell forevermore. And what does God give us if we place our faith in the sacrifice of his son? Eternal life. Whoa. His plan hasn't changed. In fact, he was working out a way to make sure that he could provide this life for eternity to everyone through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. I would say that God must really value life quite a bit if he's willing to sacrifice his own son so that you and I can have it forevermore. And that's why I said a few moments ago that in these blessings of life that we see here in these 17 verses, I think we see that God's plan is that life will continue until his other plans are fulfilled, until he has made a way for all of us to have eternal life by placing our faith in his son. And sure enough, those are the purposes that he fulfilled in the gospel through the death of Jesus. Guess what? He's continuing to fulfill those plans in us today. He's continuing to work out that new life in us to this very day. He's continuing to spread that life to others through us as we spread the gospel all over the world. He wants this world to be filled with life and he wants to give us the privilege of living our lives for him and understanding what real life is all about both now and forevermore. Father, we see it very clearly here that you value life, that this is your plan. You want us to experience it and enjoy it, know it, to live it with you and for you. As sinners, though, we, we fell so far short, all we knew was death. And yet, in your larger plans, in your eternal plans for this world, you had already made a way. Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It was in your eternal plan that your Son would sacrifice Himself for us so that dead people could come back to life. And we see both here in in Genesis 9 and in the Gospel that you love life and you want us to live it with you, for you. You want us to enjoy it and experience it to its fullest extent. Well, We'll never experience it to its fullest extent here. But for everyone in this room this morning who has placed their faith in Christ, a day is coming when they will know what true life is all about. Father, help us to remember that in the midst of all of the hard things that go on around us.
in the midst of, of the sin, the failures, the hurts that are just part of being in this world, help us to remember that there is another life coming. An eternal life where sin is no more and death is no more and pain is no more. Help us to look to that day when we will see Jesus face to face and be made like Him. Help us to, to place our hope in that moment and to, and to persevere through all of the trials of this life so that we can experience the joy of life with You for all eternity. And Father, if there's someone in here this morning who does not know what this life is all about, if they are still dead in their trespasses and sins, thinking that they can save themselves or that they just simply don't need a Savior, will you help them to see, will you open their eyes and under, help them understand that there is no life outside of Jesus? That apart from His death for us, we will die for our own sins for all eternity. Lord, we love you. We thank you. I continue to stand here amazed by the fact that you never change. That what we see here in Genesis is the same things we see in the New Testament. You are the great, living, true God. And we worship you today. In the name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen.